I respect people who make gutsy all-in trades. As a teenager, I knew someone who sold his only possession, a Jeep Wrangler, to buy Bank of New York warrants. He bought a house with the profits. Chutzpah. A decade later, a good friend put a significant portion of his net worth into Apple, near single digits. A Reggie Jackson swing for the fence. And at the beginning of the year, I watched a waitress sell her Bitcoin and put it into Dogecoin. All on her iPhone while we ordered beers. America. The closest I came to an all-in trade was selling my stocks and going into bonds in 2007. Since then, I've been swinging for singles and doubles. It pays the bills, but it's not life-changing. I'm inherently conservative how I invest my money, but take greater risks in other aspects of my life. I came to this country spurred by a younger man's dream to live in a big city. I always carry a gun when I travel, and most recently joined a jiu-jitsu gym to get strangled by people a decade younger than me. I bike everywhere, never wear a helmet, certainly not a mask. I swim out in rough waters and plan to drive aimlessly across America for the rest of my life. As long as it doesn't contravene a prior commitment, I'll generally meet anyone, anywhere, to try anything once. More simply said, I am right-brain dominant. Most people consider the brain hemisphere debate as simply analytical versus creative. I find the argument in the book The Master and His Emissary more persuasive. I should mention that the author Ian McGilchrist is a psychiatrist, not a neurologist. Well-educated, but he doesn't have a background in neuroanatomy nor neurophysiology, which no doubt led him to overreach his conclusions. Most of his observations on the difference between the hemisphere is based upon disease or surgical damage to the head, rather than an understanding of how the normal brain functions. All that said, his ideas are intellectually stimulating. His basic argument is that a better way to think about brain hemispheres is to examine what each pays attention to. Your left brain is functional. It just repeats known actions, and if it can't see something, then it's effectively invisible. Your right brain is whole-oriented, and therefore understands an external reality represented by all the senses. Such a relationship makes the right brain your mediator, the first and last stop of all experience. McGilchrist's thesis was that the modern world was becoming increasingly dominated by the left brain, threatening a sort of generational dystopia of automatons. His prescription for this, and mine, is to acknowledge the world is not independent of our observation of it, attention to it, and interaction with it. The kind of attention we pay actually alters the world. We are literally partners in creation. So go out there and push a little. Hell, push a lot. Now, there's obvious drawbacks to insisting on seeing all of the world and venturing beyond your comfort zones. And it's this sort of risk I want to address in a story about a character from my past. Why don't we call her Trixie? Trixie talked like an unfiltered Robbie Stevens salesman from the 1990s and laughed like she just poisoned Snow White. I've known a lot of arrogant women in my time, and she ranked high among them. In fact, her arrogance formed a perfect shield against the world. A dictator on her own little planet, she resented any contradiction to her smallest opinions. At work, she caused more trouble than three Memphis lawyers. At dinner, she was a weird mix of aggression and embarrassment, like a pit bull being forced to wear a dog sweater. She smoked because, like everyone in the world back then, she wanted to die at least as much as she wanted to live. She was J-Lo in her early days, partying with other people's money and her eyes gleaming like a newly waxed car hood. 
When a new man walked in a room, she used to bat her lashes like an owl in a snowstorm. She understood it wasn't a sin to get laid, but it is a sin to take a long time to not get laid. Trixie was right-brain dominant. The first time I spoke to Trixie, she had just been assigned to our hedge fund. We had a pretty young desk, most of us single, and the big bank MDs weren't dummies. Assign a hot girl to cover the account, you get your clients out for drinks. Get your clients out for drinks, you could introduce them to desk analysts and position traders. Introduce them to your desk analysts and position traders, well, now you're in business. So Trixie's given the account, and a week or so later, gets around to calling. Asks for an interest list, and then says to me, I bet you're a stone-cold hottie. I'm a little lost for words. We didn't have a lot of female sales traders, and the ones we did have were consummate professionals. They'd certainly never speak to us like that. If anything, they were overly formal to avoid any hint of impropriety. She's like, what's your AOL handle? Send me a photo. Here's my personal email. Hmm. I say I gotta hop. Maybe we'll talk later. Next day, Trixie phones me again. Tells me this is actually your second call into my shop to recap a healthcare conference. I'm intrigued. Who else is she pitching around here? I cast a wary eye around the floor. After all, there isn't a folly a man won't contemplate if there's money or a woman at stake. After describing a couple of biotech names, she says she's already bored at her new job, and did I want to talk about something else? She tells me the longer she can keep me on the line, the better it looks to her boss who sits behind her. Yes, the boy of my memories replies. And just like that, she starts talking about Japanese rope bondage. Japanese rope bondage, or shibari, originated in the 15th century, where it was used to bind and torture captives of war. According to Trixie, it's a precision skill, taking years to perfect and months of training just to get some of the knots right. She says she studied it in Japan when she worked for HSBC and put those lessons to good use on clients in Singapore when she was at CLSA. I think this is hilarious. Snort my coffee out my nose. And with that laugh, we are friends. For a couple of years after that, we hung around Hudson. Back then, the Lower East Side wasn't that much different than today. Drugs and hoes and bad men following those. There was one bar in particular we used to go to where all the men had to take their shirts off before they walked in the door. Inside, therefore, half of us were put at an immediate disadvantage. Said differently, it was a safe space and judgment-free zone for women. But not so much for men. As a client with a reputation to uphold, I never stayed at that bar for long. But I used my time there wisely. To troll people. My favorite trick was whenever we would meet a new Wall Street trader, I point at Trixie and say, her safe word is harder. Remember, the women at this particular bar were always tops, or, as the Japs would say, riggers. The safe word wasn't for them, but for men when things got too messy. Anyway, Trixie and I are out one night, and she asks if I can drop her down on Hudson before I head home. We walk in, and Trixie begins talking to a bunch of traders, mid-level sales types from Gruntle. One trader in particular is all testosterone, flexing his abs and sticking his chest out. Later on, after Trixie bald taps him to get some attention, I go ahead and tell him Trixie's safe word is harder. Gruntle's eyes light up like a Christmas tree at this. We both laugh, and I make a swift exit. Eventually, Gruntle and Trixie end up back at her apartment. Looking around her beautiful, elaborate bedroom, he thinks he's hit a straight flush. 
Now, remember, Trixie is a black belt in the art of rope bondage. There are rules that must be adhered to. But Gruntle is a Wall Street alpha male. All testosterone and aggression. Overly enthusiastic, he grabs her arms hard enough to bruise her. Big mistake. Trixie is having none of that. In her world, a healthy atmosphere requires consent. Consent is informed decision-making. When you are getting the permission of the person you are playing with, you want an affirmative yes. Consent can be taken away anytime, given the right safe word. With a combination of some astute positioning and shibari, she soon has Gruntle tied to the bed. Starts licking and kissing his stomach, the top of his hips, under his thighs. Then she reaches into a drawer and takes out a butt plug. First touch and Gruntle freaks out. He's a full-blooded heterosexual man, secure in his belief that being straight is the default, preferred, and normal mode of sexual orientation. He doesn't do any anal stuff. Trixie gives the base of the plug another tap, and he falls right back to the safe word. Harder! 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 With that, Trixie taps a little too hard, and the plug pops completely inside him. And that, ladies and gentlemen, was Trixie. She was clearly crazy, but crazy people don't know they're crazy. In fact, if you think you're crazy, you're actually not. In retrospect, for all of her chaos, only this was for certain. Trixie wasn't the sort of person who wanted to miss her 20s preparing for the rest of existence. Instead, she attacked life, like a stripper fighting over the last line of coke at a party. <laughs> God bless.